Remember that we are in the book of Isaiah and we're thinking about God being a shelter from the wind, from the storms of life. And last time we talked about God being like a father. We talked about him being like a doctor. We talked about him being like a faithful husband dealing with an unfaithful wife. And all these pictures keep falling out of the scriptures. I remember a boy saying to me in the streets of Europe once when I was working with street kids and I was teaching him to read so he could read the Bible. He was 18, he was a member of a street gang and he found the Lord. And that was the incentive for him to humble himself and ask me, who was a teacher, would you, miss, teach me how to read? I always remember this great big hulking gang leader with hair down to here and different colors and his leather jacket and chains on his back. And, and he came to me and it just putting his pride away to come and ask me at the age of 18, he couldn't read, he was illiterate, teach me to read, miss. And I said, why do you want me to teach you to read, Trevor? And he said, because I want to read the Bible. I want to read the Bible. And that was the incentive. And as he learned very quickly, actually, he could read. He just didn't know at that point. And he learned very, very quickly. It was very easy. Him and our gang of kids, we started these classes for them. And then we began to help them with the scriptures. And we only had the living Bible then in paraphrase. King James was just, as you can imagine, you're learning to read at the age of 18. And you can't open a King James Bible for those kids. And so as we began to read, he began to avidly read the stories that he'd never read or never heard in his life. He, he said to me one day, about a year later, he'd become one of the leaders of the youth group at that point. He, he said, I don't know what you're doing, Jill, next time you're going to teach us a series, but take us into the Old Testament. He said, it's like a big dark house, and I want to go inside. And he said, switch the light on for me. And what a joy it was as a youth leader, as a Sunday school teacher, as a leader of young people, to take that bright mind and that heart that had been humbled before God, that life that had been transformed and changed from unbelievable blackness and darkness, and was now molding this young man in Christian leadership. What a joy it was to take him into the Old Testament, introduce him to the characters, and introduce him to the stories. And you, you know, you just have to grasp this when nobody has ever heard of Samson or Delilah or David and Goliath, and nobody hasn't an idea that there is an Old Testament and a New Testament. It is such a joy because it's all, it's like treading on sand that nobody has ever trod in before. And there's a footprint, and you say, oh, there's a footprint. And you've never seen anything like that before. And you catch that when you're teaching somebody else. It's, it's much harder to deal with kids here who are bored with Christianity than it is to deal with unchurched, unreached people who are coming to the scriptures for the first time. But I do remember Trevor specifically loving this story in Isaiah 6. And I remember him saying, it's, it's as if he's opened the door of heaven, isn't it? And he's letting us look over his shoulder and see what he's seeing. And I said, that's right. That's what a vision is. That's how these people showed us what God was like. God gave them a vision, and as best they could, they described it in our words, which was very, very hard to do, because no man has seen God at any time. And in a sense, they saw something, and they saw symbols, and they saw light, and they saw shapes, and they saw things they could somehow relate, and then they have to try and put it down in our words. And then our translators have to take those words from a foreign language and put them in our words. And our poverty-stricken English, for English is one of the most poverty-stricken languages there are. We only have one word for a lot of things. Instead of in other languages, you have 10 words to choose from. 
And so what we have here is the very, very best that bright minds, brilliant minds have been able to do to try and show us that God opened the door of heaven, a man, a man like you and I, looked through the door of heaven and saw God sitting on a throne. And there's all sorts of things we can learn about who God is when we look at this vision. And you know, if we're going to know God, and especially in times that are tough and times that are difficult, this is one of the ways you can get to know him. There are many, many ways you can get to know God. I heard about the little boy that wanted to draw a picture, and so he tried to draw a picture of God. And his teacher said, what are you drawing? And, and he said, I'm drawing a picture of God. And so he worked away and worked away, and she said, but, but nobody knows what God looks like. And he said, they will now. <laughs> I like that. He was quite sure what God looked like, and he'd drawn a picture, so now everybody would know if they didn't know before. He had an idea in his mind, this little boy, of what God looks like. In fact, you'll be amused at this. A little boy came up to my husband and said, Are you God? <laughs> and Stuart said, No, I'm not God. And he said, Well, my mummy is always saying, We're going to God's house. And, and this is your house, this is your church, so are you God? You know, he got the sort of emphasis here. It is amazing who people think God is. <laughs> Absolutely amazing. So who is God and what is he like? He's shown himself to us. And you know, when trouble happens, if we can only keep sane, by not figuring out what's he doing or what isn't he doing or why doesn't he work or why doesn't he answer my prayers or why doesn't he change the situation or why doesn't he change this person or my marriage or this or that and the other, if we would only ask the question, what is he like? Not what he's doing, what is he like? You know, if you can't praise God for what he's allowing to happen, praise God for who he is in the middle of what he's allowing to happen. And as you start to praise him for who he is, that will help you cope with what's happening or what isn't happening. <laughs> More to be exact, that's the tougher thing to happen, isn't it? Prayers that aren't answered. I remember Leighton Ford's son dying, Sandy. He was only 19, brilliant, beautiful young Christian leader on his campus down in the south. And he was in track and field and nobody knew that he had a heart condition. His parents didn't know, his coaches didn't know, nobody knew. And as he ran a very grueling race, he collapsed at, at the finishing tape, and they rushed him to hospital. And so Jeannie and Leighton uh, happened to be in town, which was a miracle. They went the other side of the world. Leighton Ford is a world evangelist, Presbyterian minister, travels the world. But he happened to be at home. And they called them, and they rushed through the night, to, through the evening hours, when they heard, and they got hold of them to the hospital. And on the way, and Leighton tells this story, I've heard him tell it, he said to Jeannie, pray, Jeannie, pray. Maybe God will be good and Sandy will live. And Jeannie said, if Sandy dies, isn't God good? Now think about that. Maybe God will be good and Sandy will live. And Jean's response or question, if he dies, does that mean God isn't good? Yes, God is good whether Sandy lives or dies. And it's who he is, not are you going to keep him alive or is he going to die or what's going to happen or why didn't this happen or why weren't we there or why didn't we know. 
Those are why questions. And you can ask them, but you probably won't get an answer. But if you can start and concentrate when trouble hits you on who he is, you're going to be able to function in that difficult situation. And you're going to have answers, not the answers perhaps that you're looking for, but you're going to have other answers. As we look at this vision, we meet Isaiah hurting. This man is hurting. This man's in trouble. King Uzziah has died, and he happened to be a relative of Isaiah, the prophet. Isaiah was a popular prophet because Uzziah, the king, had protected him, had made his ministry easy in a country that was not pro-God at the time. In fact, it was in decline, if you know, at the end or in the middle of Isaiah's reign, they were all going to be carted off to Babylon. Jerusalem was going to be destroyed. The temple was going to be decimated. Everything was going to go. And as they were heading towards this dire thing that was going to happen, the prophets who happened to be around, Zechariah was around. Isaiah was a contemporary. Were telling the people, this is going to happen. Why don't you repent? Why don't you get racked together? And King Uzziah, a godly king in a line of a whole lot of bad lots, all these dreadful kings that have been on the throne and doing all this terrible stuff, and along comes a good one here and a good one there, and Uzziah was one of the good ones. He comes along, tries to pull the thing back together, gives Isaiah full reign, gets his money and his wealth and his influence behind him, and just as people are beginning to listen to the message of Isaiah, he dies. And this is an incredibly difficult time politically, spiritually, and personally for Isaiah the prophet. And in fact, if you read on from chapter 6, the whole thing's downhill. Isaiah never knew a convert. He never saw anything happen. And he ended up a martyr, tradition says, put in a log and sawn in two. That's how he died. And he never saw any fruit which is an incredible thing when you think about this marvelous, marvelous book and what it's meant to people down the ages. Now, of course, he must know that because he's in heaven, but he never knew it when he was on earth. And so as Isaiah comes to this point, he does not spend time saying, why this, why that, why does the good guy die? One of our world relief workers was visiting a little boy that was dying in Haiti and said to him, what can I do for you? What can I do for you, little guy? And he said, I don't know, I want this, that, and the other. And so our relief worker said, do you pray? And he said, oh, yes. He said, well, who do you pray to? And he said, I've been praying so hard to Superman. I have been praying, Superman, Superman, come and save me. Come and heal me. But Superman hasn't come. And that's all he knew exported, of course, from us, was the man who saves you is Superman in the comics. Superman didn't come. Now, what a wonderful thing it was for our world relief worker to say, let me tell you about super God. There is a super God, and he will come, and he will save you. He will either take you to heaven or leave you here for a little while, but he will save you forever for himself. And then he began to talk about heaven to this little boy. An omnipotent, all-powerful, potent, all-potency, if you like, is super God. (laughs) 
He is God of gods. It's one of God's names, super God. There isn't a God who is more superior or super than God himself as he's revealed in scripture. The word actually means he holds everything together. Stuart and I were walking around the lake once where we used to live and we've been asked to write some little books for children. And so we started to say, why can't we put the incommunicable attributes of God? Let's write them for two to five year olds. <laughs> it was a challenge. The things you can't communicate, let's try and do it in pictures. For example, omnipotence. How do you teach a two to five year old? God is all powerful. And so we thought about what that meant. And of course, there is one word in the scriptures that describes this all-powerful God, that by him all things consist, and it stick together is the word. He sticks everything together. So we started this little book when I got home. I scribbled some sketches with the world and everybody flying off it, you know, people and dogs and trees and things. And then the next page is God sticking it all together keeping everybody on the world upside down and, you know, because God sticks everything together. He holds everything together. And we, everything falls apart if God wasn't omnipotent. If he wasn't sticking everything together, then everything would fall apart. God is all-powerful. He sticks us back together again. He keeps us by physical laws, gravity, in place. By him all things consist. And Isaiah in his trouble had a great desire to see God. I want to see God. When you're in trouble, that's the first thing you've got to do. Say, God, give me a great desire to see you, to understand who you are. And this spiritual vision can be given to you in many ways. You can just kneel down and say, God, bring to my mind as I'm still before you a picture of Jesus or something that reminds me about what I know of the scriptures that's going to show me what you're like. I need to be reminded of something. You can open the Bible to Isaiah 6. If you've got a reference Bible, it will give you other references to other visions. Start and read. John the Apostle had a vision. Daniel had a vision. Abraham had a vision of God. All these people had visions of God. Just take an hour and read them all. And guess what? You will have been looking over the shoulder of people that actually had a vision of God. It's one way to see God. And if you do that, incidentally, you will be amazed at the similarities of what they saw, whether they lived in Genesis or Revelation, whether they'd read each other's writings or not, because they all saw the same thing. You can see God through the scriptures in that way. You can see God in Jesus. When I'm in trouble, I stay in the Gospels when I'm reading, because I want to see God in Jesus. What did he say to this woman when she was in trouble? Well, maybe that's what I need to hear he's saying to me. How did he help people when they were in trouble. Follow him through the Gospels. Just get in your little sandals and off you go through the story of the Gospels and you will see God. You will understand what he's like. Yes, he cares about people in trouble. Look at this. He's weeping at the tomb. He cares when somebody I love dies. He's been there. He's stood in that place. So you can see him in scripture in those ways. Look over the shoulder of somebody that's seen him. Watch Jesus for he said, look at me and you're looking at God. Remember? Philip said, if you don't show us God, he says, you're looking at him. You're looking at him, Philip. Look, look at me. You're looking at him. So look at him. And you'll figure it out. And as you're in trouble and you look at him and have this great desire well up in your heart to see him, then you'll find some aspect of his character that will comfort you and that will help you. So buy a Bible if you haven't got one and get into the scriptures in that way. And one of the things you'll see 
in symbol or in action, will be this mighty all-powerfulness, whether he's raising the dead in the Gospels or whether he's holding back the sea for the Israelites to pass through. I don't know. Whatever he's doing, you'll start and see he can do anything. He can do anything. And the miracle of the Christian gospel is he is living in me and he is living in you. And you don't have a little bit of God. You have all of God in all of you. There's nothing else to have. There's nothing more to get. When you receive Christ, you received all you're going to get. And the same God that raised Christ from the dead in all his entirety lives in you, in all his power. He that raised up Christ from the dead lives in you. That's Christianity. Christ in you. So how come you say that I'm so powerless? Well, that's another story. Maybe all of God does live in all of you, but he doesn't have all of you. He comes into the door. Does he have all the rooms? Has he got free access? That takes a lifetime, perhaps, to happen. God is all-powerful. You can see Christ in, the, in him in Christ in the Gospels. You can see God in history. You can see God in vision. You can see God in suffering. Uzziah dies, but God is in control. There's a throne up there. When my husband was young, he used to sing a little chorus. I don't know if you know this one. God is still on the throne, and he will remember his own. Though trials press us and burdens distress us, he never will leave us alone. God is still on the throne. God is still on the throne. And he got it wrong all his life. He used to sing, God is still on the phone. (laughs) And after a while, he grew up, and, and he heard it one day, and he thought, oh, I've got that wrong all my life. But then he realized it didn't really matter because God is still on the phone. He's got a throne phone, you know, or whatever it is. He is connected, and you never get a busy signal and all of that. So that was good. But God is still on the throne. What do all these people see? A throne. What do the scriptures say about God? He is going to be there on a throne when we get there. When we think of God in heaven, what do we think of? We think of him on the throne. I do, anyway. It is a symbol We know what a throne means down here. It means authority. It means majesty. It means glory. It means power. It means rule. It means all sorts of things, doesn't it? And when these men looked through heaven, they all saw this throne, this golden throne. Sometimes it's talked about as a glass. They're trying to find words. It looks gold, but it's glass. It's see-through gold, one of them said. But there is a throne there. And his train filled the temple. There wasn't a place in the temple that the presence didn't touch. He he filled heaven, and of course the scripture says that he fills earth as well. There is no place that he isn't. He is not only omnipotent or powerful, there is a throne there, but he is all present, omnipresent. I remember chasing one of my grandchildren, Chicago. Judy was going out to teach, and I was babysitting for the day, and as she rushed out the door, I said, well, give me my list. You know, grandmas have to have lists. They have, I do, anyway. Um, I have to know exactly what she wants me to do and when, you know, and if I haven't got a list, I'm lost. And so she, she said, oh, I didn't have time to make it, Mother. You know, just keep on him. Just keep on it. He was at that stage. And I said, well, I suppose I know how to do that. And I tried to keep up with this two-year-old or three-year-old or whatever he was. And by 10.30, I was done. I was ready for bed. <laughs> and so I sat down and made myself an English cup of tea, which is what you do in times of crisis, (laughs) and was lulled into a strange complacency because everything was sort of nice and quiet, you know, and then it was one of those quiet 
spells that is, becomes loud. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> Nothing's happening and suddenly it's deafening because you realize there's no sound going on. And so I leap up and start and look for him. Drew, Drew, where are you? And the little imp wouldn't tell me where he was, so I was rushing here and rushing there, <laughs> trying to find him. And I thought, oh boy, do I ever know that when I find him, he's going to be in something that he, he shouldn't be. And he was. And, and I found him and, and, Drew, what are you doing? Stop doing that at once. And he looked up. There was no guilt. There was absolutely nothing in amazement at me. And he said to me, use everywhere, Grandma. He was amazed that Grandma was everywhere. There was nowhere Grandma wasn't. She was here, she was there. He couldn't turn around, he couldn't get away. I would appear, right? That's omnipresent. <laughs> omnipresent Grandma. Have you got it? That's God, okay? What's God like, Grandma? No, it's not quite like that, but. It's omnipresent. It's being everywhere all at once. Now, only God can do that. And it was fun for Stuart and I to try and capture that concept in a book for two to five-year-olds, omnipresent. God is all over the place. I remember years ago when my mom was dying. And I thought, well, this is the year that my King Uzziah is dying. There was going to be a death. It was obvious, but I didn't know when. I lived here. She lived in England. How was I going to gauge this? I called the doctor long distance, and they don't do things quite the same in Europe. First of all, they never tell the patient they're dying. It's not done that way. In fact, you're told not to tell them that they're dying. And then they don't prognose as much as we do here. And so I couldn't get anything out of them. Well, when do you think are going to be allowed? I want a visit. So when should I come? Well, you couldn't tell me, and this, that, and the other. And so I said to Stuart in the end, let me go while she's well. I can't gauge this. How do I know? Let me go while we can still enjoy each other. And so I took three weeks and I went home. And when I got there, I went to see the doctor and he said, well, she's probably got six months more or so. And I thought, okay. As I walked into the house, the, the caregiver, who was a little nurse, was there. And she drew me aside and she said, Mrs. Briscoe, your mother is dying. And I said, no, no, I've just been to see the doctor. She's got six months to live. She said, I work with dying people. I know I'm only a caregiver, but your mother is dying. Then she said, I, I know you're religious because I've seen you've got a Bible in your bedroom. And she said, we need to tell your mother she's dying. And so I said, well, I don't think I can really do this without the doctor. And the doctor isn't into telling her that she's going to die and all the rest. And so she said, well, she said, I'm Catholic. She was Irish. She had a beautiful Irish accent. I wish I could take it off. I'm, I'm, I'm Catholic, she said. And she said, uh, whether you're going to do anything or not, I know she's dying, so I'm going to do something. And to my amazement, she produced all these candles and started plonking them all around my mother's bedroom and lighting them. I thought the whole place was going to go up in flames. We had candles here and candles there. And my mother, who was lying back against the pillows and was still well in her mind, looked around and said to me, am I dying? Well, I didn't know whether she was dying or not. I had this woman telling me she was and the doctor telling me she wasn't. But I had a sense that that little nurse knew exactly what she was talking about. And indeed, this was the time my mom was dying. And so I sat by her bedside and I started to think of all the things I had prayed and waited to say to her for 40 years. A mother who 
I don't know whether ever read any of my books, never heard me speak, never heard Stuart preach. A mother I had absolutely really no idea where she stood with God. And this was my chance. And I didn't do any of the things I'd prayed for 40 years. I wanted to do. The little nurse did. And I sat on a chair and watched 40 years of prayer answered. And it was the little nurse that took a Bible and opened it and explained to my mother that she had better confess. That's what they did in the Catholic Church. She needed to confess and get her sins sorted out. Walked her through the gospel. And then we were prayed together and I was able to pray with my mom. And the next day she went to be with the Lord. And it was as if God said to me, now Jill, you were in America and you heard about your mom and you decided to go and see her. And I'm in control. I'm on the throne. I'm above the situation. I could see exactly what was going to happen. And I brought you here not to do what you thought you were going to do, but to sit there and watch 40 years of prayers answered. Whether you've been here or not, this would have happened. I want you to tell everybody that isn't there. God's going to answer their prayers. You have to just believe it. And I realized that God was on the throne and his train filled the temple, and he's everywhere. He was in America, and he was in that little room as my mother went to heaven. What a wonderful, wonderful thing it was. God is on the throne. He's in control. And ever since then, I've never doubted it when I've had bad news and I can't be there or can't get there. I'm not, but he is, and it's far better he is than I am. Even when I was there, I didn't do anything. But he did. And he isn't limited. He doesn't only do things if we're there to, you know, take control and charge. Let me tell you. He's got it all sorted out. He knew exactly how he would alert my mother. He knew exactly what caregiver to put in her home. But he's not limited by anything like that. Jesus' connections are absolutely incredible. And as I put that funeral together and watched incredible things happen, so unexpectedly to me, I believe that God was still on the throne and his train filled the temple. He is omnipotent and he is omniscient and he knows what we can never know and we can trust him. We see that he is there, we see that he is on the throne, we see the holiness, the aura, the glory of God and the angels calling holy, holy, holy and the threshold moving at the sound of the angels' voices. I used to read this and think, well, of course, God's speaking and heaven's shaking. Why not? I expect that to happen. Don't you? When you go to heaven and God speaks, don't you expect the floor to shake? Isaiah looked through and, 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 and you know something? It, was, it wasn't God speaking. It was the angels. As the angels cried, holy, 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 the threshold shook. And I ask myself a question about the holiness of God. If that's what happens at the voice of angels, what will happen at the voice of God? And sometimes I think in our prayers, maybe even in our singing, we just get too sort of pally, too friendly. We diminish the power and the majesty and the glory of God. And I tell you, we talk about going and standing in front of God and seeing his face. I hope we're shaking when we think about that. For the threshold shook at the voice of an angel. God hadn't even begun speaking. 
So God is omnipotent. And what I pray for us, what I pray for myself, is a great desire to see God, a great hunger to be gnawing away at my inner spirit, continually, never to stop, to grow and grow. And I would have to say that each year as I come to my goals, my personal goals, that's, that's one of them every year. May I have this great hunger, this great desire to grow and stretch because your soul has no sides. You never get to the capacity where you know enough. Oh, well, I know this, you know, I've been this and I've done this course. That's impossible because there is all of God to get to know. God is all-powerful. And this great desire to see him and to know him brings you to yourself. Woe to me, said Isaiah. Woe to me. Another way to stop saying, wow is me, woe is me. And the thing that keeps you humble is seeing God, seeing his size, and then you see yourself reflected. Oh, my lips, he said. My lips. Oh, what a strange thing, because I would have thought Isaiah's lips were the best thing about him. This was his thing. I don't know another golden lip prophet like Isaiah. This was the best thing he did. Words. Words were weapons. Words he used. Words he loved. Poetry. History. He moved people. He changed a nation. He, he rebuked them. He kept them alive when they were in Babylon with words. His lips. But when he saw God, the very best thing he did became something he felt defiled, inadequate. Oh, my legs. I want to tell you as a speaker that I don't think a time I speak goes by when afterwards I don't say that. Oh, my lips. Why didn't I say this? And why didn't I do that? And why didn't I get it more balanced? Why didn't I do my homework better? And oh, my lips, oh, my lips. And you know the thing when you're worshiping, God will reduce you and God will bring you back and there will be confession and there will be contrition and you will say, Lord, I'm sorry, let me have another go. Be merciful to me. I'll do it better next time. Train me, use me, help me to work at my craft. Help me to use words for your kingdom and for yourself. And he will send an angel with a coal from the altar and he will touch your lips and he will cleanse that part of your life that you become conscious of that's inadequate and you'll have, in a sense, the original hot lips of the Bible. <laughs> the original hot lips, because from then on, he began pouring out messages, and they were burning, absolutely burning. And you know, those of you that speak, and those of you that lead groups, and those of you that teach Sunday school, those of you that are discipling, remember this passage of Scripture. And every time you're talking to someone, pray this prayer. Send that coal, touch my lips, make them burn God's message. Let it get through the barriers. Many a time I'm praying or talking to somebody, maybe on a plane or arguing with someone. I'm not getting anywhere. I just internally began to, to pray, Lord, I don't know what, what, what it is, but give me that one thought, that idea, that concept, that story, that illustration. Give me hot lips. Give me hot lips. And they're the sort of messages that people cannot resist. Great desire to be holy, conviction, contrition, confession, cleansing, and then a great desire to prove useful. He hears this voice, voice of the Trinity. Who will go for us? Did you notice that? Who will go for us? Who's speaking? Trinity are having this conversation. Well, who's going to go for us? Jesus says, well, I'm going to go for you, but not yet. 
I'm going to go to Bethlehem, yes, but not yet. So who will go for us? Who will go to Israel and get them to come back to God? Who's going to deal with these obdurate people of God? And Isaiah listening says, here am I, send me. And immediately God says, go. And he says, I'll tell you immediately, go and tell this people, be ever hearing but never understanding, be ever seeing but never perceiving, make the heart of this people callous, make their ears dull, close their eyes, otherwise they may see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. And you know, he has this incredible vision He's just come out of this mourning period. He doesn't know what's going to happen. Uzziah's flipped and gone. and Now he's not going to be popular anymore. He's not going to have a chance that he had. And Israel's on the decline, and, and he's all depressed. And then he goes and has his prayer time. He sees God on the throne. God's in control. I must remember that. God's everywhere. He's working it all out. He's got all the angels. He's all powerful. He knows it all. He knows and understands. And he gets all wound up and cleansed. And, and then he says, here am I, send me. And then he hears them say, go and tell this people. And then God describes them. And he says, well, I know, I know this lot. This is my Sunday school class. I know this lot. This is Israel. I know this lot. I've been preaching to them for six chapters, and they haven't turned a hair. Nobody's come back. And he says, oh, Lord, how long? How long do you expect me to go on telling this particular people? This passage is very, very special to me because it pinpoints a time in my life when I was a young mother on a mission station in England. And I had struggled through some hard things. And God had taken me through this passage of scripture and I had been on my knees and seeing God and come to this wonderful point, here am I, send me. And God said to me, go and tell this people. And I had a suspicion who this people was. This people, I had a suspicion, were my neighbors. Now, I lived in a little house, a gatehouse of a castle, which was a youth center. And I was separated from all the things that were going on up at the youth center, which were kids, which is where my heart was. And, and I was down raising three kids. My husband was on the road. And my neighbors were little old ladies. And I was 23. And I didn't feel into little old ladies. I didn't like little old ladies very much. I didn't like ladies. I didn't like women. I didn't want to work with women. I wanted to work with kids. And as I went through this transition in my spiritual life and got ready to say, here am I, send me, I was conscious God was going to send me to somebody. I got all excited. I thought it was the kids up at the youth center. But then I started noticing out of my window all these little rose-colored cottages and these little old ladies and wheelchairs and hobbling around and I thought oh no he doesn't mean this is my this people does he so just to find out and hoping nobody would say they'd come I went and knocked on 25 doors took my kids in the prams and knocked on the doors and we had some wonderful adventures I remember David he was about five the others were in the pram I knocked on this little old lady's door and I saw this look of horror come over her face as I invited her to this Bible study and I thought, well, it's not that frightening, is it? And then I realized that David had wanted to help and she had these beautiful tulips planted six inches apart all the way around like they do in English gardens and he collected them all, picked them all and handed them to her and said, nice flowers for the nice lady. He was trying to help mummy in evangelism. Well, it, she didn't come, actually. <laughs> But I had the courage to go back and ask her the next week. And after three or four weeks visiting, because nobody came for three weeks running. Have you, ever, have you ever put on a meeting and nobody's come? I talked to one of our pastor's wives that did that. 
worked and prayed and we planned, invited quite a big group of people. Nobody came. It's hard. Eventually, three turned up. One was blind, one was deaf, and one had heart trouble. And I really couldn't believe it because I went back to this passage, and sure enough, seeing they won't see and hearing they won't hear and their hearts are hardened. <laughs> this is this people. Oh, yes. Go and tell this people, Jill. Oh, not this people. Yes, this people. Little old ladies, Lord, and I'm 23, and I want to work with kids. Go and tell this people. So long story short, I started working with these three little people, all over 75, you know, one deaf, one blind, one had heart trouble. She died shortly afterwards. I hope she went to heaven. She departed, so that was two left. The blind lady said she wouldn't come out at night. I never understood that. <laughs> what difference did it make, you know, when you think about it? However, that left me with the deaf one, which was not encouraging. And so I screamed Bible verses into her ear for about five weeks and felt that this was all a big waste of time. Was this the reason we'd left? And I left my teaching and all my training and, you know, I went through all this. And I just kept thinking, well, here am I, send me, I'll do it. And one day she looked at me and she saw something. And she turned her good ear to me and she heard something. And I saw her alertness and I realized we were on holy ground. And that night she came to Christ. And the next week she brought a friend, and the next week she brought a friend. And I ended up with 80 little old ladies. To put everything out of the house, I remember Stuart coming home once, and everything was in the garden. All the furniture, because there was no room for the little old ladies. I said to him, we're giving a cake to the oldest lady. He'd just come off a plane, he'd been away three months. Walks into the house, and there's 80 little old ladies all sitting there. And I say to him, will you present the cake? He said, I'd love to present the cake. Who to? I said, the oldest lady. He said, how are we going to find out? I said, I don't know. So he got them all up on their feet, and he said, everybody 30 and under, sit down. 40 and under, sit down. And in the end, this little old lady was left, and Stuart presented her the cake. And she looked very startled because she wasn't the oldest. She was stone deaf. That was why she received the cake. And then all the other little old ladies were mad, and, you know, it wasn't very good. And I decided not to involve my husband in little old ladies anymore, that he didn't know what he was doing. And, you know, one day those little old ladies said to me, wish our kids could hear you, Jill. And so I said, well, bring them along. And we moved out of my house into this little church. And they brought their kids. And their kids were between the ages of 55 and 70. <laughs> so we were working in the right direction. And I had to go through the whole thing again. Well, I don't like middle-aged ladies, Lord. Well, here am I, send me. You know, see God in control, the whole thing. And yes, I'm willing and ready. And well, go and tell this people. And I came to love middle-aged ladies. Took a little while. And we filled the chapel. Now we had old ladies and middle-aged ladies. It was three and a half years later that one of those middle-aged ladies, Mrs. Frobisher, said to me, wish our kids could hear you, Jill. Wish our grandkids could hear you, Jill. And I said, bring them. And God gave me my kids. But not until I've been faithful with one little deaf lady. Because when you have a vision of God and a vision of yourself, and it results in saying, here am I, send me. He will send you to some people. I don't know who it'll be. It might be a little old deaf lady. It might be one neighbor. It might be one child in your own home who belongs to you. I don't know who it's going to be. You've got to be willing. You've got to be willing to do it in his power. 
Stick with it. Commit to it. Pray for them. Love them into the kingdom. But from that obedience will come a people, a remnant, a believing group God will bless. Here am I. Send me. Can we say that? Pray with me. Dear Lord, I pray that as trouble comes to us, it would not stop us from serving you, but be the environment where service can happen. Help us to have a great desire to see you, to understand an aspect of your character that we could never understand if we were living on a beach in the sunshine. When the storm comes, Lord, teach us that you are all-powerful. Help us to see God in Scripture, in Christ, in the Gospels, in history, in the visions of men. And help us to see you too in our suffering, that there is something you are doing, not the thing we've asked you to do, perhaps, but you are busy, for you are everywhere. You are busy answering prayers that we prayed 25 years ago and have forgotten all about. For nothing drops to the, to the ground where you're concerned, you say in your, in your word, Lord. So give us this great desire to see God and give us this great desire to be holy, to come to you and say, well, I need so much work doing in my life. Cleanse me, woe is me, oh my lips, oh my hands, oh my heart, oh my what. I don't know, but cleanse me. Give me a message, a message that burns in my heart first and foremost and burns on my lips for this people. And send us, Lord. Give us a great desire to be useful. And go with us. For you are all present. You're there already. You don't even need to go with us. You're there before we get there. You were there in that cottage that day that I knocked on the door and that first little old lady said, yes, I would love to come. You'd been waiting for me to go. Waiting because you loved that little old lady and you wanted her to live with you forever. And Lord, I often wonder what would have happened if I had not said, here am I, send me. If I had not chosen my ministry, if I had not been willing to say anywhere, any place, any time, I'm yours. Lord, I pray that we would have this great desire to serve you and to be useful. Help us to go home and read this passage of scripture with new eyes and show each of us who is this people, as far as we are concerned. We ask it for your kingdom's sake, for your name's sake, for Jesus' sake.